Um, the thing is, though, that it's an amazing collection of people. I, mm. I was starting to realize as I was out there that, you know, especially in the middle of the race, I was thinking, I'm out here running around this forest like a lunatic with a bunch of winners and we're all getting our arses. <laughs> you know, these are the people who are used to winning things and being champions and so on and we're all just struggling to oh, keep our heads funny. above water so in one case absolutely literally you know, so. there's nowhere else on the planet you would get that no it, it is you know you get a lot of races you hear a lot of discussion about what's the hardest you know and i think anyone who's big into ultra runner would definitely especially with the trail ultra running would probably pick the barkey as being the hardest i certainly would That, my friends, was Ian Keith, and this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Welcome to podcast number 30. We have a special guest on the show this week. He holds many world and Irish records in the world of ultra running, such as the world record holder for the fastest crossing of Ireland on foot, 550 kilometers running from Mizzenhead to Malmhead in three days, three hours and 47 minutes, breaking the previous record by more than 11 hours. He holds a 24 Irish running record, 248.4 kilometers, 154 miles, 48 hour Irish road running record, 343 kilometers, 213 miles, and six day Irish running record of 815 kilometers, um, which is around about 500 miles. He's also set a number of course records on some of the most grueling events on the planet. Um, one rises above the rest to me, which is the Spine. It's described as one of the hardest ultra races in Britain, which is a 268-mile race along the Pennine Way. Not only did he set a new record, but he beat the previous best by more than 15 hours. I find that absolutely astonishing. He's podiumed second place veteran and UTMB, one of the most iconic races in the ultra scene, and placed fifth in the 24-hour World Championships. He was also the first competitor to gain entry into the notorious Barclay Marathon. Loved hearing his story about that, can't wait for you to hear it. It's been a long and well-deserved introduction to one of Ireland's most rewarded ultra-runners, Ian Keith, who I have to thank for being so generous with his time today. Uh, before we start, this episode is sponsored by 26 Extremes, the Wall Duathlon Adventure. Um, it's on Saturday the 13th of October and consists of a 3km run up in Silent Valley in the Mall Mountains, 45km cycle and then a final run of 15km. It's a tough race, it's a great race to be involved in. It's right up the street, a total of 63km. Um, hope to see you all there. I give you Ian Keith. People go past those sort of unsung heroes really, aren't they? Sometimes, yeah. It's funny, you know, you say elites, uh, you know, you rarely get elitism out of elites, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it actually comes from the middle, generally, I, I tend to observe, and I've even seen it this week on boards, where they were just having a discussion about racing and overtaking and racing. And the ones with the elitist attitudes were the ones in the middle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, the guys at the front absolutely understand that everyone is racing their race and everyone is, you know, mm. the, some of the best battles are right at the back. In yeah. fact, one thing I know is sometimes the, 
the least interesting story can be the guy out in front if he's too good. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's <laughs> going wrong. Time trotting away. <laughs> there's, just, nothing, yeah, yeah. there's nothing going going yeah, wrong. There's so many oh. interesting stories of deathly in the middle and the battle for survival sometimes and all that. You know. Yeah, I think that's what grips us as well about this sport, isn't it? Really, and yeah, I suppose it's, in the essence, it's, it's a place for everyone. You know, they say it about rugby in terms of the the body shapes, but you know, you still have to get picked for the team in rugby rather than running. You pick yourself, everyone can do what they want to do with their own aims and their own yeah. <laughs> their own goals. There's no limit to it either, is there? No, there isn't. You can just go out anywhere and the more I think um, you know, the more you put in obviously the more you get out. It's a very honest spot. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it? Like and you can put in as much or as little as you want. Absolutely. And I've s i I do some cycling as well. I haven't done as much as the last year or two. People always say to me, you know, what do you prefer, cycling or running? And um, I said I like the adventure of them both, but running's a very honest sport. You know, on the bike, I can get away with it on the bike. I might get a bit of a tailwind <laughs> or freewheel down hills, but you know, if you're trying to run the long distance or you're trying to run a certain pace, yeah, you're not gonna, unless you've done the work, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I'm a big, I like cycling as well. My dark secret as a runner is I actually prefer cycling. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just better at running. But, uh, Brilliant. What, what is it about the bike that you like? I, did, I just enjoy it. I couldn't really explain it. There's something about it. I just enjoy it more. I got into biking via adventure racing. Did a big, the first big adventure race in Ireland was the Adrenaline Rush, which was up in near your hometown in the year 2000, around the Moines and the Coolies, and it was a five-day race, and I went into it with no idea what I was getting into, and mountain biking was one of the sports, and I hadn't ridden the bike since I was a school kid, <laughs> never mind mountain biked, uh, so I just got threw myself in at the deep end and loved it, and joined mountain biking gangs and clubs afterwards, and just... It's one of those sports where if you if you have a great day mountain biking, you play it back over your head going, yeah. going to sleep at night, and it's just amazing. You can have the most perfect days. I don't know. I, couldn't explain I don't know if it's a nostalgic thing that when you're you know when you're younger, it's almost that sense of freedom that you used to get when you were a child. There's definitely a childlike sense of and joy. So that's for sure. But almost without the. But without the pain. Oh no, there's plenty of pain. <laughs> yeah, you're on the mountain bike, you see, so. Oh, I've, uh, I've broken more bones uh, biking than anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, it's rarely a mountain bike it's when you go out and without getting some bumps and cuts and bruises. Uh, even recently, uh, it's about 50 50 between running and cycling, which is causing the more issues, you know. <laughs> And it's fair to say that you've sort of achieved more than most, obviously, through your running. How, how did you start down that path and that line? What sort of drew you towards? That's a long story. Yeah. There was no, there's no background whatsoever in my family, and no sporting background of any kind, really. Um, so the first sport I got into as a child was actually pitch and putt, <laughs> which, again, is not exactly the, the yeah. background you'd think. I'm an angler, so we used to always wind them up and say, you know, it was a wasted walk. Or yeah. a good walk. And I, I, now I can actually say, yeah, it is. <laughs> I've been there because I'm leading my yeah. life backwards. I know it is. Uh, yeah, and then uh, I literally got dragged out uh, to on a hill walk by friends of mine from college. And... Uh, I loved it the first time out in Wicklow as it happens and uh, that just immersed me in the outdoors and then after a while I realised I had a choice to make because both were time intensive and you couldn't do yeah. both. So I picked hill walking on the grounds that 
golf is a game of counting mistakes, whereas hill walking you can have a perfect day and you know nothing can go wrong. Whereas golf, something's always going wrong. <laughs> so that bizarre little thing set me off on the hill walking route, and that turned into mountaineering as well. I, you know, did a few trips. So no real athletic background when you were younger at all. No, no, no. And as I say, pitch and putt was athletic as I got. I was the kind of person who, if I came second last in a race in school, that was much better than most results I got. I was usually last because they were all sprints. And were you really bad at the golf and you had to chase after the ball? <laughs> Actually, I wasn't a bad pitch and putter. <laughs> I was terrible at golf because that's what I, in my early 20s, I did more golf, uh, graduated from pitch and putt. But I was only good at golf once I got within 100 metres of the green. <laughs> but um, and then from the, the hill walking, uh, I suppose I, I fell in with a crowd who were doing uh, mountain marathons, like St. Warren Mountain Marathon and so on, and what was the Wicklow Mountain Marathon back then. And that was the first competitive stuff on foot that I did. And uh, I really started enjoying that. And then uh, after a couple of years of that and the... the growing up into a full-on mountaineer going to the Alps and so on uh, just before my 30th birthday um, uh, a group of my hill walking pals were gonna do the double marathon so I just said casually that I'd join them and give it a go and I still around the day that I realized I could run was our last big long run before the double marathon where we did a 20 miler in the Phoenix Park and uh, I was running with three of the other lads who would have been the guys that I looked up to have been fit boys who I was trying to keep up with and I realized <laughs> we kind of were about 18 miles in and had to come running back up the middle of the park to get to the car at the end and I was feeling great so I just launched myself I went for it and uh, you know the sensible ones just let me out of to it and tried to chase <laughs> me down but couldn't keep me out of it <laughs> couldn't, couldn't keep up with me and I realized as I blew them away in that training run that okay Wow, I, can, I can run so I adjusted my targets for Dublin to see if I could do a sub 3 and ran 257 wow that's, that's quite phenomenal for your first run yeah do you think there's that the competitive streak in you did you fall in because how do you go from sort of mountaineering to run as a 257 is it the group of people that you fell in with and you're a bit of a competitive edge definitely a, I have a competitive mindset and that's one of the things I enjoy about all sports is the competitive aspect and that's the one thing that I, I was always missing from hill walking was that little competitive yeah. edge and that's what I actually used to enjoy about the pitch put in the golf was the competition so you know mountain running puts it all together you know yeah. and running in general you definitely the competition and the racing is probably the aspect that I enjoy most and keeps me motivated most when, mm. as always in races, you're, you're going through the dark, hard periods. It's usually comp competition <laughs> and that competitive aspect is what I use to keep myself going. You know, yeah, so. brilliant. 257 then, did you think then you were going to sort of go down that road of marathon running? What, what drew you to the longer races? Uh, well, I knew then what I'd suspected for many years, which is that I was a much better at endurance than I was at speed because I was absolutely terrible at speed. Yeah, so. 257. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the problem with 257, of course, is you just taking the big target away. It's like, yeah. where do you go from there? The next, there is no big target after that. You know, it's hard three work to get one or two yeah, minutes. Yeah, exactly. But I made it all the way down to 241 Jeez. with a stop in the middle. Uh, but I wasn't really that motivated, you know, because yeah. I never was going to get to 220s or something like that, which is where you need to be to be. Really, really, really competitive, and I just knew it would be far too much work. And I just maybe if I worked really, really hard, I'd have made it to two thirty. But I wasn't. 
motivated enough. And then I think it was about a year or two later, I got into hill running then almost immediately afterwards. Same bunch of lunatics <laughs> who uh, dragged me into the marathon, dragged me into the hill running and uh, really enjoyed that. And that was a different kind of thing because it adds obviously the up and down and mixes in the running and mm-hmm. the, the hill walking. And I found myself, when I started, I was a very good downhill runner and not a great uphill runner. And over the years, that changed, so it balanced out. It's probably gone the other way now. But um, it takes a lot of nerve when you're going down, like, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's something I just seemed to have it when I started. Plus, whatever raw, whatever raw speed I had, I was able to apply <laughs> all of it <laughs> and just let loose. And again, that's the competitive aspect when yeah. you're targeting the people in front and chasing them down. You know, and that's... That's what enabled me to drive the speed through. But um, yeah, so uh, the, the Imra had, uh, well, it wasn't Imra actually, there was one ultra run in Ireland at that point in time, which was the 50k race that Morris Mullins organized uh, in Wicklow. And so I gave that a go about two years later or so. And it turns out again that uh, the first time I did it, I got into a four way battle for the, the race with three other very good runners and as luck would have it I end up being number four but the fact that I was in the battle was you know very satisfying and did I knew then that you know the first did it surprise you when you were with that group at the start or you weren't sure you, I suppose you didn't know what to expect didn't know what first. to expect I wasn't that surprised because mm-hmm. I had a, a you know I always had the attitude that you know I would see how I do if if I happen to get the opportunity to exploit people who I think are better, I'll, I'll happily jump on it. You know? <laughs> Just because they, on paper, are better doesn't mean that they actually will be, so I, I have the confidence to take anyone on if, if the opportunity arises. And that's probably what was happening that day. And um, Yeah, but just being in that top group, two things, you know, one is I was definitely coming back next year mm. to <laughs> actually get a podium, and two, uh, I was starting to realize again what I've always suspected, which is the longer it is, the more competitive yeah. I was likely to be. And the other thing that came out of that is, uh, at the time, the, the ultra running organization in Ireland was uh, the Irish Ultra Runners Union, and they asked me would I run uh, a 100k race, the Anglo Celtic Plate in Edinburgh, the following couple of months later. Wow. And that was my step up into the world of international trolling and again that was a total shot in the dark and another big learning curve because uh a i hadn't done no, i was 50k to 100k and the 100k was flat on loops around uh harriet watt university in Edinburgh, and i ran it really yeah i ran it very well for someone who hadn't done it before but you know it's way down the field as you'd expect in a happened quite quickly as well didn't it yeah yeah it was quite a quite a rapid progression i suppose i was the, the background I had of hill walking, you know, it's a good background mm-hmm. for ultra running because you've got a lot of leg strength and you're used to being going around for hours and hours and hours. So as it turns out, it's quite a good physical and mental yeah. background to have, you know. Uh, you're, you're sort of drawn to those brutal races. There's one there stuck out when I was doing a little bit of research last night. It was uh, the Spine. Yeah. Britain's most brutal race, they call it. 268 miles or 431 kilometers nonstop over Penang Way. I'm really interested in the story there of 2015 and 2016. It sort of stood out to me because you took 15 hours off the yeah. course record, not 15 minutes. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that just hits everybody. That's one of those wild moments. But in 2015, the story was sort of different. Um, you were racing against Pavel in 2015. That was my first one, wasn't it? Um, 
Yeah, and I went in knowing that I had the ability to win it if everything went well, which no one else thought because Papa was regarded as Mr. God and just the, the Czech machine was his nickname. But I was actually, as it, as it happens, Damien Hall reminded me of this and Damien is now probably the best British ultra trail runner. But he was in that race as well and we were having a conversation <laughs> before and he was, he was saying, what do you reckon, Pavel, how much you win by or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And Damien reminded me that I said something, I turned to him and I said to him, I reckon I can beat him. <laughs> Which was quite a, quite a, a comment, yeah, quite a statement at the time. And I did, I had a plan yeah. in my head of how to beat him. But uh, and I still think I would have, except for one thing, which was my plan was to, I noticed Pavel's uh, had started fast and slowed down in his previous win. And I thought, what I'll let him do is I'll, I'll let him out, wind out the rope, and then haul him in on the second half. So I was quite happy to let him take a lead, knowing that I'd pace it better and pull him back in. Unfortunately, in that race, uh, we got hit. That was known. Every spine race tends to get known by its uh, arduous circumstances. And that year was the windy year. Yeah. And it's literally, in the middle of winter, isn't it? Yeah, January. So you always get hit by something bad. That year was hurricane force winds, really. Jeez. Genuine. Because I can remember being up on one of the hills and I literally uh, could not walk down the path. I was being blown off the path sideways <laughs> and I was struggling to get back onto the path and then just crawl along on my hands and knees for a few minutes till I got out of the direct wind and then back Jeez. on my feet again. I mean, it was really... People were losing... Um, eyesight uh, temporarily because of the wind drying out their eyes and things like that. So the race got stopped twice, and <laughs> which was annoying uh, because that meant Pavel got to rest yeah. and recharge. So I, my race tactic turned out to go out the window. And <laughs> so I still managed to outrun him in the last leg, but it wasn't enough. He'd built a big enough lead and I let him build yeah. Big, build a big enough lead that I wasn't able to hold it. an opportunity to recharge the batteries there. So yeah. Like. So that, the, the times didn't really count very much in that year because we got stopped twice and we had full 24-hour stop at one point to let a storm blow through. Um, so the next year was different. I can't remember what the arduous weather was, but uh, that the, the, second, the second time I was not going to let him away. Yeah. So did you go in with a different strategy based on what you'd learned from the first year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was... Based on the previous year, was I'm not letting him get any. Did you tell him you were going to get him again? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he knew this time that I was competition. <laughs> Nothing needed to be said. <laughs> but yeah, I just had a, a flyer, an absolute flyer. Um, but it was more than a flyer. If you, you know, if you broke the record, was because that was the first time somebody had done it under four days. Yeah, yeah, I just dipped under, and it's funny enough because the very last place where they're up on the the uh, Chibiot Hills. There's two huts up there where the mountain rescue teams uh, will position themselves and they'll wait for the runners just to check on the in on them. And, this, and the last one, two of the lads are up there and uh, they just they checked the time and said, well, you know, if you can get down in two or three hours, you'll break four days. And I thought, ah, yeah, it's a good idea. Thanks for the motivation. That's all I needed. <laughs> so that kind of pushed my speed from yeah. pathetic to not quite so pathetic for the closing <laughs> <laughs> section just to make sure I got in under the four days so uh, you never know where you get these bits of motivation yeah. will come from but that was a good one uh, but class, yeah right? that, be, that turned into a target right at the end so yeah it was a, it was a 
I was absolutely ecstatic to do it and to take. But you're off human. So next year, 2017. Even I'm just going to touch you here, just yeah, yeah, yeah. human. <laughs> <laughs> but 2017, then you were leading the race. Yeah, and didn't go quite as planned. Yeah. Um, again, is I I I was in front and I was in control of that. First of all, Jim Mann um, was controlling the race, basically, and he would have been a winner of the uh, several big races in England, like the Dragon's Back. So he's a real speedy yeah. runner, but it was his first time doing a long non-stop race. Dragon's Back is staged. And he did, actually, what I would have picked as the perfect tactic for him. He ran it like a stage race. So he ran fast and then took big breaks and then ran fast again. And myself and Pavel had no answer to that because we're plugging away slowly, but we can't catch him when he goes fast. And even when we get a front, he just comes flying past us <laughs> like a train. He plays mind games then, obviously, as well. Yeah, he wasn't really playing mind games. He was just playing to his strengths but, and doing it almost to perfection. But he fell. I, I reckon there was only one potential hitch he could have with that, which is when you run fast, you're more likely to pick it up an injury, which is what happened to him. Uh, so he did pick up an injury and had to pull out because of that, which left me in the lead <laughs> rather unexpectedly halfway through the race. And from there, I was pretty much controlling it. Pavel was about two or three hours behind, uh, but I was really comfortable and pacing nicely. But uh, the weather was turning worse with snow on the ground and snow, snow showers here and there. And I left on the last big leg. I had snowshoes packed. I left without them and then changed my wine as I started to encounter the ground we were approaching and knowing where we were going into the hills of the Cheviots. And I thought, no, it's actually worth the time to go back and pick them up. So I actually went back, picked up the snowshoes. Pavel overtook me, wondering what the hell was going on. But I reckon I'd gain all the time back. Yeah. But then I was projecting forward in terms of uh, the amount of sleep I'd had, where I'd need to sleep and where I'd be getting tired. And I realized that I'd probably be getting tired about the worst possible spot in terms of safety and mm. uh, so eventually I probably outsiked myself <laughs> and re uh, decided that it just wasn't worth the risks yeah. and I just pulled out voluntarily myself because I wasn't willing to take the risk of being not, so, not from a point of view of my own health because that's that's me, but point of view of triggering in some kind of emergency and, you yeah. know, <laughs> stopping the race and bringing the rat and rescue teams in and in the most isolated spot in the, on the race course where, and I did actually check with the, the rescue crews afterwards. I was talking to some of them. They were saying they had trouble getting around on skis and some of the points. So I was, yeah. uh, they were sinking Just down. the snow. Just the snow, the yeah. And it was soft snow, so you were sinking into it. Even right. with the snowshoes, it was quite sinky. So it would have been desperate. So I pulled out and the race then got stopped a couple of hours later. So I actually right. foresaw <laughs> the problems. I actually, my issue was I was a little too far ahead of, uh, of the thinking there, but say la vie. You know? mm. The other thing, of course, was that at that stage, I knew uh, that not only the spine would be the big race of the year, but uh, at that stage I'd found out I had an entry for the Barclay. So it was kind of, I don't really mind if I don't finish. <laughs> you know the spine the Barclay is the big picture this year and uh, this has been a good training run so, so tell me a bit about the Barclay and we actually had um, somebody on the podcast last week who'd done the Barclay the Barclay Fall Classic yeah. Classic yeah and I've seen the film a couple of years ago yeah and how did that just tell me a bit about that race then because Laz is just 
Yeah, he, he plays mind games though. Oh, Lance should, Lance should be Irish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's funny, I reckon uh, Irish people are well able to deal with uh, Lance's mind games. It's yeah. the one, uh, a lot of the background I have in adventure racing and so on, I'm used to dealing with race directors playing mind games, which is so I. I wasn't at all put off by a lot of the mountain games that go on with the Barclay. In fact, I'm quite happy to embrace them. Uh, one of the things, it's kind of known that the Barclay, with the Barclay is you do get an exam before you go in, a list of quiz questions that you have to submit to Laz. And I was looking at the questions and I was thinking, I think I'll, I could answer all of these, but the, this could be, that, that would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> Which would be a very Irish Father Ted way of doing it. I really, I was that uh, that close to actually doing that. But what types uh, of questions are on the quiz? Uh, that would be telling. <laughs> That's the thing about the bar. Isn't yeah, it? it is. It is. Uh, how did so that start? Cause it was. It was about a prison break, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, the uh, was it James R. Ray, the guy who shot Martin Luther King. It was in. Uh, Frozen Head, uh, prison in the prison in Frozen Head State Park there, and uh, he escaped, and they caught him forty eight hours later, and in that forty eight hours he made it about ten miles from the prison, and by all accounts when they <laughs> caught him he was kind of pretty glad to be caught because he was in a absolutely destroyed from dehydration and running around through the the briars. So, Laz saw that Laz is Tennessee local, um, but not quite local to Frozen Head. Laz observed all that, and he reckoned that ultra runners could do better than ten miles in forty eight hours. So, he set up the 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 Barclay Marathons as a as a race in the same area to see what ultra runners could do. Um, but he pitched it to the Laz's attitude is you know no point if it's worth doing. You know, it has to be something that's worth achieving. Uh, so he pitched his ideas. You pitch it just on the limits of what is doable. Uh, so because so there hasn't been many people finish the race, has there? Fifteen humans. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So over how long has that race been running now? Uh, thirty years plus, I think. Yeah, yeah over a thousand people have entered, and yeah, fifteen finishers in that time. A few wow. multiple finishers, which is so it's five loops, clockwise and clockwise. Yeah, it's been twenty pattern. miles. I don't even know how many miles it yeah, is. Yeah, it's been don't twenty. Be. So it's been twenty miles, no matter what modifications are thrown in. Nobody's ever measured it accurately, and nobody ever will. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> that's part of the philosophy you're not allowed any electronics on it so uh large actually issues everyone with a cheap watch he goes and buys 30 <laughs> or 40 cheap watches and you, this is the, the, all the technology you're allowed is that cheap watch just to tell not the time but the race time he sets mm -hmm. it so we're all set off it but he engages time. well with the people as well doesn't he did i see yeah. the number plates in egypt on it yeah so <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Yeah, everyone on your first race, yeah, first Barclay, you have to bring a number plate from your home country. So I, Brilliant. I made mine 181C Egypt because I thought that was a, a good representation of because uh, you're addressed as idiot uh, when when uh, Bar when Laz writes to you about the race, dear idiot. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, it's just everything about it, isn't it? Oh yeah, it just makes it engaging. There's only about forty people, I think, isn't it? It's actually? about forty people get picked every year to to run it. It's entirely Laz's choice. Yeah. It's just part of the charm. Um, the thing is, though, that it's an amazing collection of people. I, mm. I, I was starting to realize as I was out there that, you know, especially in the middle of the race, I was thinking, I'm out here running around this forest like a lunatic with a bunch of winners, and we're all getting our arses. 
shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these are the people who are used to winning things and being champions and so on, and we're all just struggling to oh, keep our heads above thing. water. So in one case, absolutely, literally. You know, so There's nowhere else on the planet you would get that. No, it, it is. You know, you get a lot of races. You hear a lot of discussion about what's the hardest, you know, and I think mm-hmm. anyone who's big into ultraner would definitely especially with the trail on running would probably pick the Barclay as being the hardest I certainly would that to me is the, the ultimate in hardness mm. I believe I heard that you was it your collarbone yeah I broke collarbone uh, so <laughs> 13 books in the lap you have to to um, to prove that you're on the course you have to uh, tear a page out of a, a book that Laz has placed and hidden away on the course and in however many spots, 13 in the case this year, and the page number corresponds to your race number. So you get a different race number for every lap. And uh, so on the third book, on the second lap, I was locating it. Uh, it was on a rocky outcrop, and I just, it was in the middle of the night, it was monsooning rain, it was really stormy, and I slipped on the wet rock. and crashed down and realized pretty quickly that that was quite hard and as I got back up I knew I'd broken the collarbone and was wow. like damn it because <laughs> there's no tracking there or anything no tracking at all there's no even way of getting out or calling for help is there in fact uh, the race has different mottos every year and this year's race motto was help is not coming <laughs> 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 very appropriate because uh, I wasn't even the worst hit uh, the worst hit was some French guy who uh, these days the course goes under the prison because uh, the prison is now closed so there's a, a, a tunnel under the yeah. prison which a river runs through and because of the rain the river was uh, for when I went through it the first time it was pretty alright but coming back the second time it was pretty roaring and some French guy apparently uh, got caught in the, the river and swept you know fell into it and got absolutely immersed so he started going hypothermic and he had to work his own way out and back up the worst hill in the course uh to try and find people because there's two spots where there's spectators and i think he looked out there were spectators and he was actually the first person ever as far as i know who didn't make his own way back to the finish because i made my own way back uh basically everyone eventually makes it out they say after 24 hours, they might start thinking about <laughs> rescue. But no one's how, ever... how did you make it out of that? Just kept on the course. I was with four other people at that stage because mm. I, um, I, I was collecting people. I, I'm a good navigator. So at the end of the first lap, I came in with uh, three other people. Well, two by the time we actually finished. Uh, one of the girls decided she wasn't going out. Uh, for the second lap because her waterproofs just weren't up to it and at this stage we were in a really Monster. thunder and lightning storm my head torch went thunder and lightning and Barclay Marathons yeah oh, they had it all <laughs> and my head torch went out but it actually didn't matter too much because I had two people around me and the lightning meant I could see quite Jeez. a lot um, so um, so somewhere like a horror film so I started the second lap with the remaining girl uh, Maggie who uh, as it turns out is a uh, she won the uh, the team gold medal with the American 24-hour running team uh, a couple of years ago. So she's a cracking good runner. But again, it's, it's always amazing who you meet on these things. And 
So she couldn't, she wasn't a great navigator. We agreed going out, like, I'm happy to do the navigating. And I'm, ha you know, I love, love to have the company of second pair of eyes. Because, you know, if you're out there getting lost, it's better to be lost with company than without it, you know. <laughs> and uh, then as we were approaching the first book, going backwards on the second court lap, uh, two other people were waiting on the trail because they'd spent an hour or two trying to find the book Jeez. and couldn't find it. So you don't it. even know where the books aren't sitting there, you have to find the books. You have to find them and you have Laz's written instructions, there's seven pages of written instructions about how to find a book and the I instructions are not, you know, grid <laughs> references or anything so useful, they're, they're Laz style instructions so it might say something like you come to a cliff, you know, you can, t if you take, if you go in the wrong direction, you'll get cliffed out and you won't be able, you'll have to go back. Don't go that way. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so and, and they're all absolutely correct, you realise afterwards. It just, yeah. you know, you just have to work it out. There might confusion as well. Oh, yeah, not, yeah. I haven't got clarity to think. At the end of the first lap, I was absolutely mentally exhausted from dealing with all this. Jeez. And I'd be well used to navigating yeah. in, the, in bad weather, etc., etc., <laughs> and even taking care of people navigating and so on from my adventure racing days. But this, this, just the intensity of what was required there was, was enormous, so the mental load was huge. I knew I'd needed to learn it on that mm. lap so I could apply it in the, in the following lap. And sure enough, the following lap, I was basically the lead navigator because these two other people then joined in. Cause they, so now we had a group of four and I was now doing the navigating. But again, four pairs of eyes good for actually looking for the books when you're in the, the, the tight area. It's trip. <laughs> yeah, it was very much like one. Uh, so we found the book in about two minutes after those guys had been looking for it for two hours because I, I, my memory for location is pretty Best good. Best friend for life. Yeah. <laughs> we met two other people. We were going down the hill out of that one. We met two other people. I thought, oh, this is good. Uh, but they were lost looking for, they were coming the other direction in, in their first lap. So we dragged, we pulled them around and showed them where their second last book was and then set them on their way then carried on and then up the hill to the next one where we picked up uh, Jamil who uh, is one of the top Barclay guys and he was he'd been lost for four hours trying to find that book he'd actually gone to sleep you know, under a cave <laughs> to just to take a mental break from the trauma of trying to find the book and this is the one where I had worked out a formula which would take 10 minutes to execute but I knew I'd find the book and I did that formula while I was doing that, I slipped and broke my uh, collarbone. So I had four people around me. And Jamil, apart from the fact he couldn't find that book, was really experienced. He'd completed about nine laps over several years without actually ever finishing. But that meant he knew his way around quite well. So the rest of the day became Jamil bringing us on a tour of the, the course, basically, and showing us everything. And then I was trying to take it all in. But that made it easier for me with the broken collarbone because yeah. uh, company... Uh, I, you know, one solid navigator there, uh, who was not only happy to share, it was he, he considered his duty to teach us all how to do it, you know, and so we had a great time. It was actually one of the most enjoyable, uh, experiences great I've company had. As well. Great company. As I say, you're with a bunch of class athletes and you discuss, start talking to them and discovering these amazing backgrounds That's everyone funny. has. So we just had a ball and we were determined, all of us, that we would not quit. We knew from about one third of the way to one halfway around that uh, we were going to time out, that it was we were going so slowly that we were going to come in way over time, wouldn't get the opportunity to go out in the third lap. But we were determined we finished that second lap so that we would, 
we would not quit. We'd be t- we'd be hauled off rather than hauling, you know, <laughs> crawling off. And we did that, and we were very, very, very happy to have done that. So in a, in a lot of races that you've done, you know, after the first time you you've done it, you sort of learn the race, and you bring that into the next time you do that, and you seem to yeah. smash it. What the hell do you bring out of that experience? And how, how would that help you moving forward? I learned an awful lot this year in Barclay. Uh, huge amount, uh, which I, I'd love to get the opportunity to start applying that yeah. again. Uh, I, you know, I will try and get in again, but uh, you know, I have no control over that beyond trying to get in. Uh, but if I do get in, I'll try and apply all that back. And I, as I say, I do have a great memory for finding my way around. So that should be a huge help the next time uh, I actually do run through the through the laugh in my head every now and again just to keep it fresh and sort of mentally sit there and think about the Barclay course and just you know make sure I don't lose it <laughs> exciting stuff so we'll look forward to that um, another one sticks out is the Mizzenhead oh, to yeah. Malinhead what surprised me was there was a world record already. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else had done this. Quite, quite a, a number of people have done it. Yeah, yeah. Which surprised me. But again, you broke the, the world record this time. Yeah. By 11 hours. Yeah, yeah. What drew you to that? That's just a different ballgame. That's huge. There's a long backstory to that one. It's something I've known about for a long, long, long time. Uh, many, many years. Uh, my, my friend Richard Donovan, who was, is one of my heroes, uh, and... He uh, is another ultra runner. There's always someone madder than you. Where I, I run across countries and things like that, Richard runs across continents. <laughs> That's his hobby. Uh, and uh, so Richard, many, many years ago, had the record and he had it in both directions. Uh, and wow, I, so he I, didn't do it once, he'd done it twice. He'd done it twice, yeah. And, uh, but he'd, he'd actually got a lot of injuries along the way. You know, and I could see plenty of places where you could pick up time. In the meantime, you had three great, uh, three great female British runners had come and, and in turn broken the record. You know, with Mimi Anderson being the last one. And I always thought under four days looked very doable to me, but Mimi did it in three fifteen. I thought, okay, she said it at a level now where I'm actually gonna have to work to beat this. It's not. Yeah. I knew I could do under four, but three fifteen meant okay. I just can't lazily wander up and do it. I'm actually gonna have to work this. So there's out. a lot of women ultra runners are starting to come through, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. All these races even beating the men. They. Yeah, I think at this stage, in terms of progression. Uh, certainly in the flat world mm-hmm. the all the interesting stuff is happening on the female side where you have uh, Patricia and I'm not going to try and pronounce her surname the Polish girl who broke the 24 hour yeah. world record in Belfast I mean she's amazing and you have about three three four five six Americans who are also just mm-hmm. behind her and in several others as well and it's just amazing they really really limits yeah constantly doing it constantly doing it so at the moment on the female side they're really really and they all bring the best out of each other as well whereas on the male side we're all chasing Yanis Kouros <laughs> he's just put the record so far out that no one's getting near them so it's it, there's definitely a lot more progression there on the female side in the trail side it's more balanced because you have a lot more going on in the male side as well as the female side there i, I can tell listen to you already one of your strong skills is how you're breaking down the race yeah so when you you've seen mimi what she done you're like well you can take a bit of time here 
Do you see that as one of your strongest skill sets is how you can look at what's ahead and how you break that down? Uh, there's lots of it. Um, pacing is definitely one of my strong points. You know, not going out too fast, but actually pacing for the full extent of whatever it is. And it's one of those things that I've always been had a fairly good skill at. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. even the sub three hour marathon <coughs> as a first marathon, that, that I definitely went at that knowing what I wanted to do each mile. Yeah. And, you know, and that, and I can to this day I look at that first hundred k up in Edinburgh. One of the interesting things from my point of view after it, I thought I'd done badly because the laps were not distance. And the first 50K, I did the laps in 16 minutes. And the last 50K, I did them in 18 minutes. And I, I, was, I was disappointed in myself for that fade. But then this pre-internet days, they actually posted up all the lap counts on, in the sports hall of every runner taking part. And I actually took the time to look at it, go around and look at everyone's lap times and analyze what their fade was and things like that before the prize giving. And I realized that I had actually had the least fade of anyone in the race and that this was, you know, an international yeah. race. And clearly this was a skill I had, whether I knew it or not, that was pacing and just that steady pacing. And it's definitely, it's a huge thing in terms of getting the most out of yourself is to, you know, just make sure you don't burn out during make the race. Make sure you don't burn out, Because yeah. you had an amazing race from Mizzenhead to Malmhead. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of that, that's one of the things that stuck in my mind, running towards Malmhead. And I was clocking, you know, much faster than I expected to be in terms of my target pace. You know, a little quick check of systems check, you know, what's hurting, what's not hurting, blah, blah, blah. Now, you'd expect lots of things to be going wrong at yeah. that stage after three or four, three days of running. And there wasn't anything wrong at all. I was just cruising along happily, and it just felt like it was the culmination of a lifetime's mm-hmm. preparation. You transcended and sort of like you're on cloud nine. You must have been. I was on cloud nine, and it felt like you know this is all the hard work over the years, just kicking in now. This is the end result. You know, yeah. I, I can deal with a multi-day race without being sleep deprived, without being in pain, and running a pace I want to run. In blue skies in Donegal, which is probably the biggest miracle of the lot, <laughs> you know, and it was just, it was uh, the best run I ever did. I I can I used to have trouble picking out what's the best thing I ever did, and we'd say, oh, I could have been this, could have been this. I think listen to Malin. It's just a perfect race. Like, just went you didn't just break the four days. It was three days and three. Three hours, days, three hours, forty-seven minutes ish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and just the way everything went with it was just a dream. You know, it went really. I mean, there was little little problems here and there, but nothing big. Uh, but everything just went so well. As I say, it was really, really good. And uh, having been a long term target, one of those things I kept putting off because it's easy to put it off because it's not a fixed time. You have to pick your own time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was always a case of I'll do it, but I'll do it next year until I kind of had to mentally trap myself to <laughs> say, okay, this it's time. It's an I'll FTJ, it. isn't it? Is it, it is. It FTJ. Is, yeah. um, fastest known time. Yeah, yeah fastest known time. So how do you actually record that then? Because there have some people who try to dodge over time, which is a bit hard to take in. Like, but that's, a, that's another big discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, traditionally, it's all been about honor and honesty, mm. you know? And. Uh, you do, I mean, in the recent years especially, there's been a lot of controversy around particularly uh, trying to break the run across America, the transcons, where you've had uh, quite a few chances come in. Plus yeah. there was another famous one over in England where it, uh, 
and then to John O'Groats. Uh, and yeah, it's, and from my point of view, there's a few steps I took. One, I made, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I announced it as much time as once I made up my mind, I announced it early. Invite anyone to come along, watch, made sure that I had a tracker on myself and a tracker on the support crew, uh, you know, so that you got, I could be live tracked, uh, which, you know, technology yeah. is there. It wasn't always there, but it's there now, so it's, it's worth doing. Um, and the other thing, I was being very honest about it in terms of I'm not doing this for charity, I'm doing it for me, you know. <laughs> a lot of people, you would see that a lot of cheaters would justify themselves as charity, even think of the Lance Armstrong, you know, the cancer, yeah. <laughs> the famous cancer defense, you know, and I wanted to take that out completely by saying, you know, this is totally selfish and it's not for any charity. Just pure any, running, right? Any, any cheating is <laughs> will be done for me and not justified yeah. by a charity. That's brilliant. Yeah. So it was 550 kilometers. Yeah. Um, but I believe that like, you were running out of pace, obviously, because there's at one point there was an unofficial 48-hour PB for you. That's right. So, yeah, yeah, I worked it out. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> when I, you work, those like, you obviously love your numbers. Yeah, um, that must have felt, made you feel really good about that race. You're already feeling really good about yeah, it anyway. Yeah, no, it's going well. But yeah, it's, it's one of those little things you work out along the way. And yeah, that was definitely a, a mental boost to know that uh, I mm. calmly <laughs> broken my forty. Mind you, the forty-eight hour PB was a, a, a split in the six-day race. So. Uh, but even still, that would have been on a very flat circuit, whereas I was, you know, I'd actually deliberately taken the, the hills of the West Cork first. Okay, so that six-day race then, it was, because that was another Irish record, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, not many Irish track. people do six-day races, so they're <laughs> relatively soft as they go. They maybe go out into Dublin on a Thursday night and come home six days later. <laughs> yeah. About as far as it. Yeah. It goes like, but you ran, was it like 800 kilometers? 16. Wow. I'd previously run so 800-ish, yeah, 500 miles exactly in New York was the first six-day race I ran, which was a, a big step up in terms of degree of difficulty from, from my point of view. And uh, the six-day New York one is quite a historic race, and it was, it was a nice one to do from, from what I like doing, as I call it, running in the, foot, the, the footsteps of legends. Because that's the, the list of winners. It's an iconic race. Like, yeah, it's iconic. You know, you wouldn't know it when you're there, but it is. <laughs> uh, it has no visible signs of being iconic, but it's definitely iconic in terms of if you look at the people who've done it before and some of the history around it. It was great. So it was quite a pleasure to do that. Yeah, the energy year 24 as well. It's Luke Course. Yeah. Yeah. And you did a phenomenal race on this. On the world. Yeah. Well, last year and at the World Championships. That's when I. Uh, that was another big long-term target and that was the follow-up to Miss into Mellon. In fact, one of the reasons for the timing of Miss into Mellon was because I knew Belfast was coming. Mm. So the, the weekend I did it was basically the, the last point with the, in terms of wanting increasing daylight but leaving enough gap to Brilliant. Belfast. Plus getting the training benefit of doing a, a multi-day run and having that go through the Belfast yeah. was having enough time to recover and pick up on the benefit and it worked in a big way because mm. like i arrived into belfast in very good form uh, mentally and physically so uh yeah the, the funny thing about belfast was the 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 on course timing system had a bit of a meltdown mm. mid race which upset a lot of people 
but not me so much because my first 24 hours are many, many years ago uh, in Tooting Beck and they were run old style by manual counters where you occasionally have to wake up and <laughs> 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 say, I just did a lap. And, you know, scoreboard updated once an hour with written in, you know, and New York Six Day was the same actually. Run by the same organization, all very manual, all very. A lot has changed over the last twenty years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Do you prefer what type of race you prefer? Because they're so different. Obviously, you've got Energy Twenty Four and you've got the Spine Race. The two of them, like one's just like a raw sort of journey, if you like, and the other one's almost like it's almost like a purist sort of form of running. And that's exactly how I describe it. The the flat ones are exactly that. It's the purity of them that makes them interesting, and the fact that you're you're competing against the clock because you know it's like mm. a track race you know there are world records you know you, you can get yourself down with national records of you can compare yourself against the best that's ever been it's all comparable and that makes them interesting in themselves whereas the trail races everyone is different you know and you know two years and two different ultra trails the times don't necessarily mm. compare because the, the circumstances can be so very different and yeah. of course the distances mean nothing when you add in the terrain and the altitude and so on every you know a 100 mile race is completely different to another 100 yeah. mile race you know you the know, difference about them makes them that day and the weather exactly <coughs> so that's the that's the the pluses to the flat ones is that purity of it the pure running effort that you're isolating it down to just the pure running and competing against not only the people around you but yourself your previous records trying to set pbs trying to set whatever records that's what i like about those ones the it's far more obvious what's good about the trail runs you know you're yeah. out in the mountains you're it's making a journey yeah and on paper they look more difficult because you know you have to deal with the bad weather you've got all this kit to do with you have to a lot of times you have to navigate but all of that actually makes it easier as far as i'm concerned because that's a mental distraction and mm. you know it's good to have these mental jobs to do uh whereas well, when you're running around in circles like a demented hamster uh <laughs> you know local, mental distraction luckily we have a, a race called the hell and Dales, yeah and i think it's easier <laughs> because yeah. of the distractions and yeah if you, if you have a vertical climb you have to tranche up it exactly. you should get a break tranching up it rather yeah. than just pounding the road and nothing left to give yeah they are actually easier because they're more fun I, I that's my only comparable i have with you so still <laughs> <laughs> no you did right you did. um but on the energy of 24 do you find ones more mentally because i can only assume how mentally tough that is at running and holding that pace um, compared to the likes of the spine, both of them extremely mentally challenging. Do you find one more mentally challenging than the other? I find uh, the flat ones more more mentally mm -hmm. challenging for sure. Um, the 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 hardest thing about the trail runs tends to be if you're getting you're feeling tired at the wrong time. So if you're out in the middle of a storm and the next shelter is kilometers and kilometers and kilometers away, but you want to go to sleep. That's the big mental challenge dealing with that sleep deprivation. Whereas uh, on the flat ones, you really shouldn't be sleeping at all in most cases. Mm. And uh, it, the mental challenge is just to not stop, just to keep going. Because you have an opportunity to stop at every 
you know, if it's yeah. if it's energy, it's a basically a, a one mile lap. So you know, you, every mile you can get the opportunity to to sit down and to stop and to relax or to crawl into the tent and go to sleep. So it's not doing that is a it's a big challenge and keeping yourself motivated to keep going, especially when you start to feel it because the pace tends to be higher as well, because it's on paper an easier course so you're pushing yourself quite hard and you're hitting the limits you're not racing people you're racing records really aren't you no i can be i i i like to race people uh, yeah, I was going to say then, if you haven't got that person in front, what is your motivation to keep pushing hard? It's like yeah. the four-day thing. If you get it under four days, that gives you that extra bit of... Yeah, it, it, I actually go have to go look for it sometimes. And mm. my history, my own personal history of 24-hour running is quite often a history of motivation and where to find it and where to lose it. Uh, where to find it and where to lose it. Yeah, like my best, probably my, one of my best results was... Uh, the 24-hour world championships in Bergamo maybe must be eight or nine years ago at this stage but I'd given myself uh, a target of trying to break the Irish 100 mile record which is quite meaningless to me in <laughs> some ways but it's just a target you know and uh, kind of better motivation into yeah. the race, I suppose. so I paced myself well I was going really well and uh, when I hit it I'd forgotten to give myself a follow-on. So within two laps after that, I actually tried to pull out. And Tony Mangan, who had been my teammate but had pulled out way earlier, was now supporting me. And he was, he was more horrified than I was at the thought of pulling out because he was on the side. He could see how well I was running and he was just like, you're not pulling out. I'll go out and walk the next lap and I'll go to the American doctor and find out how to fix you. And, uh, and this all did happen. In the meantime, I... I took about two or three laps to get my motivation going again. Then I started racing for position because I'd been working through positions in that race and I'd found myself, you know, going from about 100 down to 80s, down to 60s in terms of the world championship position. So by, by you know, an hour or two after my near, near collapse at the 100 mile mark, I was, uh, Tony was calling out, calling out numbers of who was next ahead what my position was and at that stage I was into the 20s going oh, oh my god <laughs> how am I up this high the best runners in the world yeah exactly and, and Tony had previously gone 16th in, in the first 24 hour international I'd done uh, he'd come 16th and I thought that was an amazing result so the fact that I was approaching his result was huge and Tony was there saying you're going to break my record <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to make sure of it uh, brilliant and uh so yeah, that was getting really excited. That was getting me motivated. So that they were working exactly the motivation I needed, which was give me yeah. something to chase down. And by the yeah. end, I was in the top ten chasing that's runners down. Yeah, and that's I, the, the final result. I ended up fifth in the world, which was just total nosebleed territory. <laughs> See, that's when you look back to date, one of your best results. Well, obviously, it was one as of a result. Results. Yeah, 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 as a result, it was it was kind of freakish. And what happened was everyone else got it wrong because it was a hot start and they all went out too hard. Whereas I paced myself, as they usually do. <laughs> so they all you started that. dying off while I was just keeping the steady pace, apart from the one big wobble. The so wobble ended up costing me a medal because I was on, ended up only one kilometre short of being third in Europe. Jeez. Uh, so. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. You have that makeup then I'm seeing now. You've got, so far, we've talked about navigation, talked about pacing, you've talked about how you break down the race. And that competitive edge if somebody's in front of you tracking that thing um or behind watching <laughs> and you don't let them catch <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant 
Um, and UTMB as well, another elite race, yeah. phenomenal race. Um, everybody tries to get into it. has quite a few DNFs as well on the, yeah. on the big race. But you've done phenomenal in that race. Yeah, although not in the last three. I've had three DNFs in a row now. But uh, yeah, before that, I had a great result, which was uh, uh, my third go at it. Uh, I had a flyer. And uh, yeah, I managed to come second in the over 40s category and 20th overall. And That's 20th in the UTMB is a. Yeah, uh, yeah I rank that with the. Uh, in terms of results, it's right up there, definitely. Because yeah, to get it. Uh, the, even this year, the elite field was about 70 or 80 deep, you know, easily. Yeah, that's just what the computer splits, spits out mm-hmm. as people have over 750 points, which is... What's, what's the most difficult part of that race, do you think? Uh, the competitive aspect. Uh, for, for, for me, it will be that. Because in terms of the terrain and the distance, it's, it's all quite comfortable for me. Because uh, at this point, I'm used to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Having done Tour de Gaunt, which is basically twice the distance and three times the climb, the UTMB is relatively straightforward in comparison. You know, uh, Tour de Gaunt is a more challenging race in terms of surviving it and the degree of difficulty you feel in it. So the problem with UTMB is you have to run really fast by the nature of these things. And certainly that's what tends to got that's what's gotten me in the last few years is the, the speed required has uh, pushed me over the edge. <laughs> What age, what age are you now? Don't mind me asking. Say that again. What age are you now? You don't mind me I am about to be 50. So I'm wow. currently running in the over 50s category. And my target this year for the UTMB was to try and win the over 50s category. And I had got myself to a position where I probably, if I'd have not broken my rib, I probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that happen? Uh, I just had about three or four trips, uh, just snagging my foot on rocks and roots and things. And... Uh, yeah, the first Jeez. one was on the first big downhill, and I was really ripping it down the hills, absolutely flying. I, I, I remember a third of the way down in the steepest section, I ran past Jim Mann, who, as I say, is a really fast runner. And when I ran past him comfortably, I was thinking, oh, good. <laughs> I'm hitting good speeds in the downhill, so now I'm actually not pushing it here. I'm just letting it flow with gravity. Because yeah, yeah. uh, a lot of people are just breaking there. But uh, yeah, about two thirds of the way down, I managed to just snag a little root or something, and because uh, of the speed I was doing, it was quite an impact on the ground. So I, I was, there was a lot of blood because I'd cut my hands and so on. But apart from that, it was all fine. Uh, I thought, but uh, three about three trips later, uh, I could start feeling the effect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of those, well, the last trip must have just pushed. Whether I'd already broken a rib or not, it just it just <laughs> it pushed me over the edge. So that the next climb, when I arrived into the aid station, I actually asked him what my position was in the category because I've been feeling the the uh, the effects for a while. And they said I was still in third, and I was thinking <laughs> I can't pull out because I'm still on the podium yes. uh, in the in my age category. Uh, so I kept going, and I knew once I hit the up that I had a broken rib because I'd broken a rib in the spine two years ago and I knew what that felt like and uh, I knew this is exactly the same thing that total loss the breathlessness and the, the inability to move fast because you're so breathlessness and the guys in the aid station had actually said do you, do you want to sit down for half an hour because I thought okay I must be looking a bit green instead <laughs> of break breathlessness again uh, so I just I knew yeah. my race was cooked but I decided it was 
you know, my wife was going to be further on, so I'd just keep walking until I got to her at the aid station where she was. So do you, do you get much time out from those injuries? You've broken a few things there, like, so the back and you're breaking your, your collarbone there. Do you find that having much of an effect on you, or do you...? Well, um, you know, it's always a good idea to take a month off in any given year, just to mm. have that month off. And uh, they come naturally with the breaks. <laughs> so I, it's, it's in the last couple of years that it, that's what's happened. I haven't needed to target a month off. They come with yeah. their own accord. Uh, but I do tend to keep, try and keep things taking over somehow. So at the moment, I'm actually uh, sitting on the turbo trainer pumping out god-awful miles on the bike indoors <laughs> just to keep the endurance right. just to keep the muscles going and keep yeah, and you, you, you find it obviously important then to take that month out to try and prevent you from burning out yeah yeah because you do see a lot of ultra runners you know uh do burn up there's a lot of american runners in particular have got overtraining uh, mm. syndrome and just taking themselves out what's the sort of telltale signs that you see in yourself then when you're you feel yourself getting close to that? Uh, lack of enjoyment would probably be the most obvious one. If everything's become a drudge, there's no point in doing it because, you know, it's a hobby. It's <laughs> so your motivation drops. I think that's the, the first sort of signal. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. come back very quickly. Yeah. And this is where having something like cycling and, or anything yeah. like that is a, something to switch to is good, you know. So. Do you find the cycling, because I know one of the ultra races I did, um, I'd done 100 miles on the bike the day before my long run. Yeah. Um, my body wasn't accepting two long runs yeah and I, I found it did actually help the endurance keeping my heart rate low and doing 100 miles use six hours on the bike yeah, exactly do you find that sort of support or help aid it helps for sure and I, I know a lot of uh, cyclists and it's one of these things I've observed from hill running is a lot of the guys I, one year in particular a lot of the mountain bikers were turning up to the hill running races and a very very obvious pattern was that they were really really good climbers and terrible descenders uh, so there what that was telling me is that whatever the bike training whatever how I don't know how it was working but it was turning them into great climbing uh, yeah. climbers so whatever that might carry away from that is if you want to get good at climbing the bike is going to be very beneficial you would think that they'd be good descenders because they can read lines mm -hmm. from being mountain bikers but despite that advantage they weren't so clearly Viking was giving it's them your definition of good descenders you see <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's maybe the issue they might go well, flying back it was just an, inter us. an interesting uh, fitness thing so uh, you know last year at UTMB I re my climbing wasn't great so one of the things I did this year was up the amount of cycling I was doing to try and be a better climber coming in this year which worked you know, yeah, I know a lot of triathletes will actually go to the mountain biking during the winter for some strength training in their legs. Yeah, so I'm yeah. sure it's very similar to that as well. Yeah, and plus it's that whole switching, <coughs> switching around and doing different things. The other thing I think is you're less likely to get injuries because you're balancing up your muscle training. You're not mm -hmm. just hitting the same group of muscles all the time. So after my first marathon, you know, I picked up runner's knee not long afterwards, but I haven't had it since because I've been doing a lot more cycling since. Yeah. Because you know, I think things are more balanced now. I talked about, there about a low heart rate as well and how your body sort of adapts to burning fat yeah. really rather than sugar. Yeah. And when I started marathon running and read all this stuff in the magazines, I was pumping sugar into me left, right and center. Yeah. And I f was finding I had no control, I was going up and down, the crash yeah. was even more and slowly but surely stripped it back to find actually a better just to try and maintain what you can do yeah. rather than take the sugar and I started training by heart rate yeah. and found I could go longer with the f what I was feeling on and 
when I told people I was coming down to see Inky, ask him what he eats, ask him what he eats, <laughs> ask him what he eats. Because there's a myth out there that you absolutely eat nothing, but you do eat very little on the course, don't you? Yeah, I eat very little in races, absolutely. And I eat very little, I eat nothing in training, when I'm training. No matter what distance or... Yeah, I, I, know, I've know, I, have, I can't remember the last time I ate on a training run or a cycle. That's brilliant. Uh, and, and what's your long sort of run that you haven't eaten on? The training-wise... Training I, I regularly go for at weekend six to seven hours, possibly consecutively Saturday and Sunday. Uh, so what um, what type of fluids do you drink then? During those times, most of the time nothing. Uh, during the hot summer oh. this year, we had a few days where I was drinking half a liter to a liter of water, but only about that's on amazing. Yeah. So you're really trying to get your body to adapt to that sort of situation. Yeah, and it's one of these things I learned. I came at it backwards. Um, in that I'd learn through mistakes which is the best learning and sometimes the mistakes are not mistakes but they're they're mistakes in theory but great in practice so particularly from adventure racing where uh, I would they were the first multi-day races I was doing and it's the usual thing people are everyone's tells you you need to eat every 20 minutes and drink every about the clock and I'd just you should be taking jail every 15 minutes exactly yeah. <laughs> so of course it'd be, I, I, you'd be transporting food around this morning half <laughs> the time so I would being the navigator I'd have to prepare the maps and quite often that would meant and get it absolutely 100% right so a huge mental exercise to do before the race even starts and quite often you'd arrive at the start line and go oh, thank god we're starting the stress yeah, zone yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'd often quite, I'd quite often miss meals or whatever before a race, but not have an impact. Or I'd end up going 24 hours in a race and run out of food and I have no impact on me. And I'd started to realize and realized over time that there was no need to be snacking all the time. That was just eat when you felt like it. Same with drinking, drink when you feel like it. And uh, I realized that one good meal a day would power you through 24 hours, no problem, as long as it was a good real food meal. Uh, and this is in the middle of long, arduous races. So uh, I was learning this through practice and accidental not having access to things that everyone you needs or just forgetting to eat because I'd be so busy navigating or whatever. And, and the other one was probably, even though my fastest marathon was Dublin in 2.41, as I say, my best marathon result back from the early days when I was still a, a marathon runner. Uh, was in Snowdon where I did 252 which and Snowdon has got about yeah. 3,000 feet of climb and descent so Jeez. and I came sixth in that and like my only goal it so that was I count that as my best marathon result because that I nearly broke my PB actually on, on one of the hardest <laughs> marathons around so my PB at the time was 248 so 252 on a hilly hilly course because I remember going into the last hill I was in the 11th and then yeah. the hill was only a mile long and at the top I was fifth which yeah, sort of race you look at you think you're going to have an hour to your marathon time yeah exactly so I was delighted with that but the thing was the day before I'd actually I'd, I had a group of friends over and they'd gone hill walking while I just sat in the B&B watching rugby and Welsh or whatever to rest <laughs> and uh, they got lost and we ended up with a panic and they didn't arrive back until midnight so we missed out on my pre-race meal turned out to be an Indian <laughs> in the local Indian restaurant, which is went all against the grain of yeah. you know nutrition, and yet I ran my best marathon after it. So again, all these little clues about what really matters and what doesn't. And then I met Barry Murray, who's uh, you know he's a sports scientist and nutritionist. And first time I knew I knew his background, but I didn't know 
the way he taught when I first met him. And I expected to hear the usual thing about carb loading and needing to do it every 20 minutes. But no, Barry told me about fat adoption and all this. And as he explained it to me, I was going, yeah, yeah, that's, mm. that explains how I'm, that explains what's going on. But well, so suddenly, to that realizing that really. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually done the practice and he told me the theory, yeah. you know, and, uh, and of course he puts it into practice himself. So finally, I had the explanation as to what was going on. Yeah. With Barry explaining, you know, what the, how the theory works and, you know, I was able to fine tune it then rather than just it's really about staying in your fat burning zone isn't it and your body's get adapts to burning fat yeah. rather than sugar yeah and you know and sugar being your obviously glycerin health, healthy i mean i'm i've got a sweet tooth a mile right mm-hmm. i'm not going to lie and say i eat you know excellent to bring food i don't yeah. but i do make you know i do do things like not eat at all when i'm training to make sure that i'm done. do you know a guy called paul crow by any chance no no I don't. He, he asked me to ask you um the name Jelly being in oh, his yes. fine race. <laughs> well, that's one of my my uh, rather than gels, which people keep as an emergency. My emergency food these days is jelly beans. Yeah. <laughs> I carry around a little uh, little uh, Ziploc bag of jelly beans, uh, Aldi or little jelly beans, whatever. And <laughs> there's twenty flavors there, so I dip in. If I'm getting a mental low, I'll usually I might dip into the bag of jelly beans. It's a little reward. Little reward. Little little pick up because uh, yeah. the you get the the pickle juice effect that um, uh, famous nutrition experiment where they did double blind testing on uh, cyclists and it turns out that the effect of gels or whatever pickle juice in this case kicked in way before digestion so they reckon the effect is as it hits your tongues it's bring signaling yeah. your brain and the good stuff's on the way so you can get that by you know just yeah, having a few whatever jellies whatever you like and that's what that's what i'm doing with the jelly beans there just sort of trying to kick my brain into being in a happy mm-hmm. place and plus i i play that little mental game of uh, what flavor was that <laughs> you keep your mind occupied keep your mind occupied yeah it makes a lot of common sense though doesn't it when you think where we've originally come from we're yeah. hunter gatherers exactly and persistent like we didn't go out hunting for animals or gathering uh, you didn't seeds. call off the hunt after 20 minutes because you, need <laughs> <laughs> you needed to find a watering hole you know? it brings you back and there's so much false advertising out there yeah this and the other. marketing marketing yeah. tons of it you um, talked about i'm going to be selfish now because i am going to i'm hoping to be in utmb next year just a ccc race yeah um, what sort of advice would you give somebody from a peak training week look like? So you've talked about back-to-back long runs. I know you can't say specifically it's, it's, it's yeah, all different it's, for everybody, but... You just answered the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's but exactly it, it. Maybe a methodology. So you talked about your back-to-back yeah. sort of long runs. Is that something that you... For me, yeah, back-to-back long runs are probably the most important thing I do. Cause, but then I'm, you know, I'm at the extreme end of endurance. You mm-hmm. know, uh, nobody... There aren't if the, the there's only really one race out there which I haven't got to yet because it's too long. Usually I'll take if there's an option of a short and a long, I always take the long. So I tend to be racing the longest races I can find. So my training is very much yeah. tuned for that, and I can feel my speed disappearing now as a result. But my endurance is still holding up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be careful about what you're targeting and you know know what you're doing. So the back-to-back long runs for me are are very yeah. very very beneficial i think just to get you used to running long and running long once you're tired so the second day is the the real 
gainer there mm-hmm. you know because you're, you're potentially starting tired and it's, you, you, it's almost I like the idea but it's almost maybe not like this almost training for the first half of the race and then day two is training for the second half of the race because you're exactly fatigued. yeah exactly and it's usually the second half of the race where people have problems because yeah. you know any, anyone can be anyone can lead in the first hundred meters <laughs> it's it's keeping you know as i always say uh you, quite often the people when they're asking about pacing i'll tell them to slow down and if they get it wrong and they go too slow then they can have a sprint finish and yeah there's only there's only about two or three people I know who've ever managed a sprint finish in ultra, and I'm one of them, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, because yeah. most it's almost impossible to do. Yeah. You know, people have to be very cautious when they're reading things and listening to podcasts because oh, people are always looking for the shortcut, really, in the answer. Yeah. Um, I have a good motto which I stand by is that's to listen to everybody and follow nobody. Yeah, because your situation is so different. Yeah, and what works for you won't work for the next person absolutely and I'm, I'm very bloody minded about that and mm-hmm. there's very few people I actually listen to uh, I, I, well, I, I listen to a lot but there's very, very little mm-hmm. I actually will filter through and, as actually being useful um, and I, like, I've never had a training program written down I still don't have one you know I'm, and I'm, I've built, I'm, I'm more happy to build up my own knowledge and build on my own awareness of myself of what I should do over the years and keep modifying, keep learning. And any race is also a learning experience. And you do have to know yourself. Any training plan out there is just either generic, so yeah. it's meaningless, or your own coach has given it to you. And that, that might mean something, but that's, that's very rare. Um, and most people don't have one-to-one coaching. You, know, and that's, you do find that when you start listening to yourself, listen to your body, you can get more out. Um, I find sometimes you wake up your legs a bit fatigued, so I'm going to do a longer run flatter, or you're actually fe- you wake up feeling fresh, well actually I'm going to hit the hills today. Yeah. And a training plan will never give you that. No, no it won't. And you have to know, and, and that can actually become a, a, di- a mental disadvantage as well as people start chasing the plan mm-hmm. and becomes targets to miss, you know, and then that becomes a negative. Whereas, yeah. Yeah, I try not to introduce negatives, I, you know, unnecessary negatives. Call it, <laughs> this is what, uh, what Barry calls via negativa, you know, where you're actually subtracting things out as part yeah. of the effort rather than adding them in. So you're taking away all these things that are a source of mental stress mm-hmm. or a source of perceived failure. Uh, so like the eating thing, you know, one of the advantages of not needing food is that's one less thing to go wrong mm-hmm. you know you miss an aid station so what <laughs> you know you don't especially for running long distance which is so much about the mind yeah yeah and you really want to go in with as much energy in your mind as possible don't you yeah and I think I've, I've seen people stand at the starting line ready to run a sub three hours and they're that stressed out they've really taken 20 minutes off the time before the start absolutely and it gets a lot of people in a lot of ways and, and quite often in training as well because mm-hmm. you know you, you've got to keep a, an amount of enjoyment in training wherever it comes from yeah it's got to be it's got to hurt in one way because no pain no gain but you have to know what kind of hurt that is if you're mentally not looking forward to it all the time then something's definitely wrong mm. you know because uh, you know if you're you know it's a hobby <laughs> we're doing it for enjoyment in the end so you've got to at, at some point make sure you know you've got to make sure that you've you're, you've got the all the ups in place and you're not letting things get in the way and giving you mental downers so one thing you can guide me on i suppose is 
Your kit. What's the key things that you would put into your kit? For the likes of the CCC, <clears throat> to be very specific about it, uh, obviously your runners are important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so what know, type of runners would you sort of wear? What type of grip? Or? Uh, it varies. Uh, and I usually go to the likes of the UTMB with two sets of gear the kind of the and now it's actually in the kit list they they've actually adopted what i would have adopted for years they now have the standard kit the cold weather kit and the warm weather kit and i'd always have arrived there with that anyway i'd have gear for if things go really bad and if things go really hot planning again (laughs) (laughs) planning and experience (laughs) Um, because you you just never know um so um the the shoes I mean, again it depends on the weather this year i went with uh you know i'm sponsored by columbia so i get access to whatever columbia gear i like which is great because there's a lot of really good yeah, stuff so good gear. good gear so they have um shoes which have got built-in gaiters which are really good for the gators are there to keep out the water, but they also keep out the grit, mm. you know, which is very... Those little stones that play around in your head. Exactly. Is yeah. it a stone or is it a blister? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if they're not getting in and you're confident they're not getting in, it's a pretty good plus. So I, I ran, ran with those this year because the weather was looking iffy and uh, that was a good enough excuse to do it. But I also had a pair of shoes which were uh, much more cushioned and much more uh, mm-hmm. speedy. So if the weather was really good, I was going to go with those, but they didn't. Oh, yeah. Uh, they wouldn't have been good if it was too wet unless I was willing to put up with the wetness but uh, yeah so the the, the bomb proof waterproof ones are yeah. quite awful when I go with even <clears throat> if it's not raining just to keep out the grit you know so because uh, the blisters are bad like your feet are getting wet you yeah, put yourself a risk yeah. really aren't you yeah I mean, but you know it's one of the things you should, when you're training in Ireland it's one yeah, of those yeah. things you should be getting used to um, and over time your feet do harden up time Time's a great trainer. The other thing, of course, is, uh, I mean, all the layers have to be good, quite frankly. Uh, the rain jacket is a big one to me. I usually, again, I, Columbia makes superb waterproof jackets, which are there, the technology in them is, is a step ahead of everyone else. And people who, uh, people think I'm just overplaying Columbia and then they get them themselves and then they oh yeah you were right actually <laughs> it was actually notable in uh, Barclay this year that uh, Johan Steen uh, one of the Swedish owners was wearing a Columbia jacket because he'd seen me wearing it in the spine two years ago and himself and myself are two of the most com- were two of the most comfortable people in the middle of the spine in the middle of that rainstorm because we, we had all the kit on and even the other runners around me were looking at my rain gear going that looks pretty good. <laughs> Where'd you get but that? We're well, well used to that saying here. There's no such thing as bad weather. It's yeah, it's bad, bad gear. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for the likes, when you're on a long distance race, there's no hiding from it. It's going to get you if you don't. If you're the wrong gear, it's going to take you out. Yeah. What about poles? It's something I've never used. Yeah. For the first time I did UTMB, I went in with no poles. And on the first climb, I realized that was a mistake <laughs> <laughs> with all the, the walkers uh, charging past me using their poles. Yeah. So, so do you see them as a big advantage? Do they add speed into your race? They do on hilly races, yeah. Okay. Uh, big hilly races. Um, uh, and learning to use them correctly is, is well worth doing. Because okay. not many people use them to their full advantage, which is Nordic walking style, basically. Um, so Google Nordic walking spell then. Yeah. <laughs> what do you look for in a pool then? Obviously light. In my case, strength is the, the number one criteria. Okay. Uh, light, no, uh, because I have 
destroyed so many right, poles okay. <laughs> because over a long race they can take an awful battering so it tends to be strength uh, first and foremost I have now got a, a, a sort of a, a, a strong pair which are sacrificial and a lighter pair if I think I'll get away with it uh, which I used for the UTMB because that's one of the shorter ones yeah, where it's yeah. a spine and something like that, <laughs> that the heavy one comes the out yeah <laughs> Heavy ones come out for Barkley, heavy ones come out for, you know, <laughs> heavy environments. And is there a spe- specific model? Uh, uh, no, there's quite a range of them out there, so uh, you know, whatever is okay. good. But uh, definitely don't go for the super lightweight yeah. <laughs> carbon <laughs> break apart ones because if you fall on them, you'll probably break them. You know, they okay. need to. Good to know. Yeah. I, the first what about the height of them? Obviously, there are. Uh, I'm assuming they're great. Oh, so they're obviously telescopic, aren't they? So yeah, most of them are adjustable. Um, I, I use mine quite long. Um, mm. Again, because uh, Nordic style, uh, you tend to, it's pushing behind you more than grabbing off. Is there a time when not to use them? Uh, I don't use them much going downhill, but again, it's up to individual preference. Yeah, okay. Some people like using them downhill, but I find I'm faster with just holding yeah. my hand and flying down without them. <laughs> Launching uh, yourself. Yeah, exactly. But. Uh, I mean, the, the main thing with poles is don't, uh, don't get in other people's way and try not to batter anyone else. That's yeah. the, the real, <laughs> the downside. Not the race is you, you're not going to pull them out until it's actually you've cleared and get them out of yeah. way because you could become quite dangerous after a while. Yeah, yeah. I've just got a few questions here which I put out to people that listen on the podcast. Sure. I've got three or four just to open it up to them. Um, Dermot Winters, he's come up about wiggly mileage. What sort of wiggly mileage when you're up in peak rate? A good question because I have no idea. I have an attitude, again, this comes back to the mental side. I'll either know my mileage or I'll know my time, but I won't know both for a training run. Because mm. that's just paralysis. You, you can end up with paralysis by analysis or turning a good run into a bad run by overanalyzing it. Yeah. And so you know, if you get to the end of a training day and you think, oh, that was good, and then you run the numbers and think, oh, that was slower than last week. <laughs> You know, what have you gained by knowing that? Mm. Nothing. <laughs> what have you lost? You've lost uh, the benefit of thinking you had a good training run. So I go out and I run for time generally. And mm. uh, I decide, okay, I'm going to run fast for an hour. Actually, no. <laughs> that would be speed sessions. But, so I do run, run relatively fast for an hour 40. Or I'll do a, you know, a weekend. It's a six-hour run, slow. And that's it. I don't. I couldn't tell you what the mileage is. I could take a rough estimate, but I don't even bother. I I, I can totally relate to that because I've seen my me going through a run and thinking it's a great run, and, you know. And I don't know how long, maybe fifteen miles. But when you look at your watch, and your mindset totally changes, yeah. and all of a sudden the run is just falling to pieces. Yeah. Whereas five minutes ago you were enjoying it. You were having yeah. a run of, run of your life. Exactly. So Declan Long then he um, asked. Do you mentally cope? How do you mentally cope with the lack of sleep and moving as quickly during the night? Men- the, the lack of sleep is probably the worst thing I, I, for me in the, the multi-days. Uh, I hate sleep as a deprivation, so I try and factor it out as much as possible. Uh, I don't cope very well with it when I get the sleep deprivation. <laughs> it's agonizing. Um, you just plow on as best you can. So there's a few things I do, like in, in Mizzen to Malin, I had a total, I think, what did, what did we work it out? Over the three days, I had two two-hour sleeps. They were the, yeah. the first night I went non-stop, and then the second night I had two hours, and the third night I had two hours. And then I had a cumulative total of one hour, 
which was composed of about four 15-minute power naps. And those 15-minute power naps can get you through five or six hours. Can't just recover you. I, I can only relate when you come home from work and you're totally exhausted. Yeah. Ten minutes and then you're fresh. Yeah, yeah. Fresh so again. that if you're if you're tired, that's that's one way of coping it. The hardest ones to cope with, the hardest times are actually in the the again what looks on paper quite the relatively easy situation of the looped races mm-hmm. uh, over six days, and I have always had great difficulty getting to sleep because your legs are in such a state that you're actually like a washing machine turning and turning and turning and turning. Uh, so it's probably the only time where in a race where I actually feel the need to take painkillers. It's not for running, it's for actually sleeping. <laughs> so that I can just get to sleep. Because it must be hard to get back up again to the legs. I, I, in training runs, I hate stopping. Yeah. And running with people who actually stop and take uh, drinks, etc. Because yeah. I feel my legs sort of tighten up. Restarting. Definitely. Avoid, avoiding restarting <laughs> is good, which means avoiding stopping in the first place. Uh, beware the chair is one of the, the phrases I've heard a lot of late. Uh, and definitely there's a lot of traps. Uh, I often say, you know, don't get comfortable. The one thing you don't want to do is get comfortable. If you're uncomfortable, you want to stay uncomfortable because... It's very easy to stay uncomfortable. It's very hard to go from being comfortable to being yeah. uncomfortable. And everyone knows this. If you open, if you're going out for training and you open the front door and you're greeted by a wall of rain, <laughs> you know you don't want to step out into that. Whereas if you're out in the training and it starts to raining, you just keep going quite happily because you know. I think that's one of my struggles is when I go into an ultra race and I'm really starting to suffer, and I just start to walk to give that bit of comfort. I remember I met a guy in, it was actually the Moonway Ultra. He walked past me and he says, well, how you doing? I said, oh, I just need to get going again. And he shouted at me. <laughs> he says, you're running a friggin' Ultra. How do you expect? Think, I'm not hurting. Yeah. He says, just get on with it. But he's doing the right thing. After about a quarter of a mile, I came back again. You just yeah. got, I don't know if it's right to say you got comfortable with the discomfort. Yeah, you know that's I mean? exactly so. it. And you do, you do. Uh, I call it the morphine effect because uh, I remember someone telling me that, you know, when you get morphine after an operation, it's not that the, the pain goes away, it's that you stop caring about it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly in multi-day races, I find that after about two oh. days, that's exactly what happens. The, the second day is horrifically painful, but by the third day, the pain, same pain is there. You just... It's background yeah. noise, you know, that you just, that's part of it. You're dealing Brilliant. with it, you know. And Barry Drennan then, he touched on those two-hour breaks. And that's, that was obviously planned into your race. Is that something you train for or? No, I don't train for it. Uh, apparently, you can't really train for it. I actually think that's probably not true and that there's probably some way of getting an mm. adaption in there because my feeling is you can adapt to some extent for almost anything. Um, like I definitely think yeah. you can adapt for less water. Whereas there's no... There's the human no body is an amazing thing. It is. And yeah. it's amazing what it can do if you trust it to give it a go. Which is a lot of what I do is doing exactly mm-hmm. that. And not, not listening to what you can't do, but saying what you can That's do. Um, but I don't train for it. Uh, but I have been getting better at it. And I have no explanation for that apart from maybe it's just a benefit experience mm. and maybe it's just getting used to the discomfort and, yeah. you know. <laughs> Talking about discomfort and Paul Clark, um, when going through a rough patch in a race, <laughs> what do you do or think about to get yourself back on track? That's the way, competing, yeah. Mm. Uh, catching the guys in front, not getting caught by the guys behind. That's my usually my best okay. motivator or 
time targets or just having something to drive yourself forward like that and yeah, brilliant. always making sure that if you do hit your target that there's another one down the road to aim at before you finish you know keep those targets coming there's two here and they're pretty similar but one um darren hamilton's asked what's left on your bucket list of events and races there's always something <laughs> so many races out there so it's not like it was 30 years ago when it was there were many races about now it's just yeah. there's now so many that you have absolutely no chance yeah. of doing them all I, even in ireland i i would love to do the carryway ultra but it keeps clashing with the, the big alpine races and uh whether it be the tour de gant or the uh the utmb so i'm still i mean i i have actually in the last years kicked off ticked off a few huge bucket list ones Niz and Tamalan being an obvious yeah, one yeah. and Barkley being a very obvious wow. one you know there's still a few classics out there which I haven't got to which I'd like to get to but I may never get there the likes of uh, you know hard to get into ones would be the western states or hard rock easy to get into but you know I would, I would just be going there as a tourist would be something like the uh, Comrades Marathon Mm. Uh, or the Comrades Ultra down in South Africa just because it's such a classic. so iconic isn't yeah. it I mean one I'd, I would in a bizarre suffery kind of way like to do just because of what it is would be the the 3100 30, mile race which is, is the longest race there is is that the one in New York that's in New York uh, yeah. it's a one one kilometer loop around it's the funny I heard, I heard about that the other day is it 52 days yeah however long it takes to run the 3100 miles 3100 so yeah it's it's a lot of laps <laughs> but it's just it's, a, it's in the middle of New York and just in goes in the middle of Queens and a fairly in the suburb yeah so it's a total suffer fest, but just because it is the longest race in the world, that's the only thing that really attracts me. I think I'm, I'm, I did actually hear about that race before, and there were... I don't think I'll ever do it, having said that, because it's too long time off. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of time off. Yeah. It takes like 52 days or something, and um, I think the attraction to that, some people's challenging, what is the attraction to that? But very similar to what you've talked about and going into that area of pain. Yeah. Um, there's a great sort of energy comes out of that yeah and during the race i was listening to a guy who had actually done the race and he was he transcended after a certain amount of laps yeah yeah into a different plane and it's almost like a spiritual sort of journey for the guys isn't it it a lot of them say that and the organizers are very much into that self-transcendence thing that's their that's their big thing i'm sorry but um for me it's I still tend to get my motivation through competitive rather than the uh, <laughs> the otherworldly yeah. stuff. Uh, my wife would tell you I'm much I'm, I'm I'm fairly grounded in terms of that way. Uh, much more. Um, the the last question I think you've already really answered this one is from Sarah McNeeny. Um, McNeeny, um is Barkley card is Barkley on the cards for next year? Hope, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> I'll I'll be attempting to enter it, but. Uh, it's way beyond my control as to whether I'll actually get in or not, but uh, it's everything it's cracked up to be. Mm. It's it's an awesome experience, and I had a great time out there, and uh, I'd just love to go back there again. I think it is. It's definitely a pinnacle of the ultra-running world. There's no, no doubt, doubt. Yeah. And it's a good thing that nobody finished this year, because Laz actually tries to make it a little bit harder when That's somebody That's right, does. yeah. That was the one relief, exactly. Because <laughs> I now, having looked back and having found a few old course maps, allegedly, and knowing what the current course is, and hearing 
word on the street of what was added when and why jeez you know he's he's a cruel man (laughs) (laughs) and uh i actually reckon i could finish it if i did the original course yeah no i actually don't i don't think i have a hope of finishing the current course it's so the level of difficulties that we're at when was the last time somebody finished it was the last uh two years ago two years ago years ago yeah um and i think yeah it will be finished again but I don't think it'll be me. <laughs> and what is your next race then? My next race uh, is currently looking like it's going to be uh, the UTMB is branching out to little branches and they mm. have one in Oman in the Arabian Peninsula. Wow. It is the uh, end of November, start of December. So I think I'll pop along to that. That's excellent. Uh, yeah. So I just have to get that broken rib out of the way and then uh, go into that. So I haven't raced in the desert in quite a while. So this is this is the uh, bit of a contrast from the likes of the spine. <laughs> Ian, that's brilliant. We're going to wrap it up with that. Thanks very much. No really problem. appreciate you spending the time. I know we took a lot of it today. Um, I had to Google half the races that you've done. <laughs> you've done that many races. You've done exceptionally well in them and over such a very quickly you sort of catapulted into that as well and um, one message i suppose sort of finishes try and get comfortable with the pain and you'll do well yeah although again you know keep the pain to a minimum keep the, enjoy- <laughs> keep the enjoyment up that's that's the one thing i'd always say enjoy is usually what i say to people rather than good luck you know because that's yeah. you know if you're enjoying yourself that's all that matters yeah <laughs> excellent thanks very much Ian. you're welcome cheers Ian Keith, pioneer in the world of ultra running, the race drives his motivation but he's a purist at heart. I really love this podcast, I'm a truly outstanding athlete and I hope you picked up some good tips if not motivation to help you in the future. Don't forget to download the Popping app and follow the Inspirational Runners podcast. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.